0: All right, I am Nicolette, and today Brian and I are here with Eric Kusen. He is the founder of We're All A Little Crazy and the Same Here Global Mental Health Movement. And he is here to talk to us about some cool stuff today, mental health and all that great stuff. So, hi, Eric. How are you? Thank you for joining us today.
1: Good. Thank you for having me. appreciate it.
0: Did I get that right?
1: You got everything right. right. That's pretty impressive.
0: Nice. So, Eric, um, you know, for those who don't know you and don't know about we're all a little crazy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your move from the sports world to mental health?
1: Sure. If I go on too long, then cut me off, Uh, (laughs) because
0: it's
1: (laughs) there's there's a circuitous route that got me there, which I think happens with many people when they when they change course. But uh, yeah, I worked in professional sports for 15 years right out of college, so started at the NBA league office. Then I went to two NBA teams, the Bulls and the Suns, and then two NHL teams, the Devils and the Panthers. And it was about six months into my tenure with the Panthers where I just started to lose interest in everything outside of the office. And I justified that lack of interest by saying, hey, maybe this is the world's way of telling me I need to focus even more on work, which is a really ridiculous way to look at it now looking back. But it was the way I was able to rationalize things in my mind at the time. And, you know, I, I, I started to really lose more than just interest. I started to mo- lose cognitive abilities as well. You know, the, things as simple as forming sentences, looking at people in the face and having conversations, remembering people's names, all started to fail me. And it got so bad to the point where, you know, someone who was scratching and clawing his whole career to try and continue to do more and gain more uh, opportunities, I had to go to my owners both have military background, West Point grads, and uh, say to them, "Something is wrong here. I don't know. I'm not being a good human being for myself, not being a good employee for you, uh, and I need to figure out what's going on." Now, this is for for you know the purposes of context. This is the beginning of 2015, so January of 2015. No one was talking about this stuff back then. You know, this is before the Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan stories. Um, And anyone who had spoken about it, it was like, wow, look at that wacko weirdo who's discussed it before, you know, and, and we'll get into kind of the way that the media does discuss it still to this day. Um, And so I went back to New York, my, my owners couldn't have been more uh, supportive. They said, take as much time as you need one month, two months, three months, come back, hit the ground running. And so when I heard up to three months, my mind went immediately to the first thing that I had known as when it pertains to mental health, which is what I'd seen on TV with these commercials where these cartoon figures go from a sad face and a gray cloud above them to 15 seconds into a 30 second commercial, the, the music becomes really light and the clouds go away and the sky becomes sunny and the, the birds are chirping and the person's smiling. So off of the context of, of growing up in a society where we take antibiotics for things like, you know, strep throat or bronchitis and we get better in two days, and it's called an antibiotic, and it sounds like an antidepressant, or something working against something negative in your body, you're thinking, at least I was thinking, this is all I need to do. I'll go home and I'll try one. Hey, I've done this with antibiotics before where the z pack doesn't work, so I take mm-hmm. the Leviquin instead. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I came back to New York. I went to the, the bed that I grew up in. <laughs> My parents are still together, so living in the same house six, four and two forty, two forty and I'm laying in a twin bed, staring at the ceiling. Um, and first doctor I go to uh, gives, I leave the office with uh, five prescriptions, five different medications to try together because I went to what's called a psychopharmacologist where they mix medications and excuse my language, but his feedback to me after seeing a chart that I filled out was Eric, you have a shitload of depression on top of a shitload of anxiety you need heavy artillery to knock this out of your system. And so in his mind, heavy artillery was a lot of drugs. And so that pattern and that process was what I followed for two and a half years, laying horizontally in that bed for 99% of the time where I had no interest in watching TV, no interest in uh, listening to the radio, listening to podcasts, barely answering my friend's text messages other than to say I'm still alive. And uh, the other 1% was spent, you know once every two or three weeks being handheld to go to these doctors to try a new different combination of drugs. So over that two and a half year span, I tried over 50 different combinations, those didn't work. I was then told uh, by, by one doctor, we need to change this up. Let's try you on a different type of treatment than just psychopharm meds and, and let's do what's called TMS therapy, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation where they put this uh, object that's like a half moon above your head and they shoot it into this motor threshold part of your brain that gets your thumb twitching and they know they've got the right spot. And the idea is to try and wake up these neurons in your brain that haven't been firing and get them firing through the synapses again. And so you have to do it every day um, or they like you to do it consecutive days in a row. Mine wasn't covered by insurance. So $350 out of pocket each session (laughs) and uh, I do 23 sessions 23 days in a row I come home and I can't fall asleep so the doctor says stay home the next day try and sleep whole other day goes by I don't fall asleep again so two nights in a row that next morning after not sleeping for two nights was the first time I ever experienced this concept of what a suicidal ideation is mm-hmm. so I'm looking at this bottle of pills on my counter and the only thing that's going through my head now keep in mind nothing bad situationally had happened to me in the two and a half years that I'm laying there no one, close to me had passed away during that time no pet of mine had gotten sick so the question is where did these thoughts come from which we'll we'll get back to in a second but I'm looking at these bottle of pills on my counter and the only thought that's going through my head is swallow that bottle swallow that bottle swallow that bottle and it's playing like a record on repeat and I'm literally sitting on my hands stopping myself from going over and reaching towards that bottle because I don't feel like I can control myself but at the same time, I've got this part of my brain that's telling me, why, why are you even thinking this? Like, you don't want that to be the, the end result. So I'm fortunate enough being in, in my parents' house, I, I called out to them. I said, you gotta take me somewhere. We gotta, I'll, I'll voluntarily check into a hospital, but I something's not working right now. So we checked into uh, Cornell Med, which is supposed to be like, you know, one of the top treatment facilities in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get transferred to their Westchester psych ward facility. Uh, very beautiful, septic-looking hallways with uh, metal beds, and and your shoelaces get taken from you because they're afraid you're going to do something to you. And I go and I meet with the psychiatrist, and she looks at my chart in the first day, and she says something to me, which is part of my motivation for running an organization like this. Something that I never want any patient to ever hear ever again, whether it's mental health or physical health. She she looked at my chart and she said, Eric, wow, you've tried everything. Um, so we need to do shock therapy with you because this is your last resort. And, and people, when they hear that story, they think that I'm referring to shock therapy as a the thing I don't want anyone ever to have to hear. It's hearing last resort is something that I don't want anyone to ever hear. Because if you're a patient willing to fight for your health, fight for your life in this particular case, You should never be told that this is a dead end and this is the last chance. There should always be other treatments out there, whether you're eating some dirt out of the ground because you think it's full of minerals or what have you. Um, But that was what I was told. And so that's what I did. I did 12 sessions for five weeks of shock therapy and I didn't get any better. And it was an awful treatment. I'm skipping the details of it. Um, But I left the hospital going back in that same twin bed that I was in for the two and a half years prior thinking my life was essentially over unless Merck or or you know Pfizer came out with some miracle drug that popped me out of this thing that they were referring to as treatment-resistant depression. That was the only thing that all these doctors had used with me. So serendipity as it would be, my, my parents were both uh, retired educators. So my father was a principal and my mother was a, a language teacher. And so they went to these continuing education courses. And one of them that was being taught was this course on what's called integrative breathing practices? <laughs> and it's funny, because my parents like don't go to doctors, regular doctors, in and of itself, let alone like, you know, alternative, holistic type <laughs> of stuff. So they sit through this course, and the only thing they pick up from this woman is that she treats people who are dealing with either chronic pain or mental health complications. So they run up to the woman afterwards, they said, My, you know, my son's been dealing with what we're told is treatment-resistant depression. Can you help him? Nothing else has helped him so far. And so she says, sure, I'd, I'd love to meet your son. You know, I don't know that I can definitely help him, but I treat differently than most. Have him come in and, and, and we'll have a conversation. So two days later, I'm, I'm taken to her house. I, I sit on the couch on my own and we're having a conversation. And she's the first practitioner in two and a half years who instead of her first question being, Eric, what are your symptoms here so we can help you eliminate those symptoms? Her first question was, Eric, can you tell me about your life? And when you're asked that question in a very broad way, you don't know where to begin. And probably as indicative of how little I knew about mental health, I didn't know where to start with that question. Cause I didn't know what experiences might've impacted me. So I said, Oh, I'm in the middle of three boys, sports craze family. We all live and breathe playing sports, watching sports. Mm-hmm. And so she said, okay, well, let's start with your older brother. Then tell me about your older brother. And so that's when things, you know, started to kind of turn in terms of her eyes opening. Um, so my brother's four years older than I am, and when I was nine years old and he was 13, this was how our life played out for the next 20 years. He broke his femur bone in a swimming accident and was in a body cast for a year homeschooled. homeschooled. Heals from that, a month later is diagnosed with ALL, a children's form of leukemia. So goes so, through all the radiation for five years, goes into remission, which obviously we're all very thankful for. And a month later, is driving with his friends in the back of a Jeep Wrangler. they just gotten their permits. Everyone's all excited that they're driving, so his friend's driving erratically. He falls out of the back of the Jeep because the car loses control, lands on the parkway, cracks his head open, loses partial vision in his eyes, and in the ICU for a month. Heals from that, goes on to college. Uh, sophomore year of college, he's feeling a, a pain in his knee um they do a a bunch of different blood tests they find out that the leukemia has come back so now many years later after having the cancer the first time they really need to give him a much stronger chemo regimen to really knock it out of his system and the chemo drugs are significantly stronger at this point than they were back in the 80s when he first had it Mm -hmm. so they give him the stronger drugs his body starts to break down from the drugs being so strong he's got 105 fever we bring him to the hospital and we find out that his body's going into what's called septic shock, where your organs are attacking themselves. And so that, that makes his body fall into a coma. And he's in a coma for three months. And we don't know if he's going to wake or if he's going to have any brain activity. The neurologist can't tell us anything by looking at the charts. So we're coming in every day. I'm, I'm driving back from college at this point now myself. And um, my, uh, my my parents are there every day, basically living at the hospital and you know, again, we have these fears of, is he gonna be laying there for the rest of his life like this, is he gonna wake and only have partial ability to speak to us? Again, miraculously wakes and has his full faculties about him. But from the rigor of the septic shock, his kidneys failed and so he had to go on dialysis, which then led us all to getting tested because he needed a kidney transplant. My father's the closest match and my father ends up donating a kidney to him. Finally, I'm thinking I'm in the clear, couple months go by, from that period for the next year, I had three close friends unexpectedly pass away of heart conditions, uh, all in their 20s. And so, you know, I, 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 I'm telling the story to this woman, her name is Donna, and, and she kind of looks at me and she's like, Eric, you have PTSD. And I said, well, PTSD we learned in school is for servicemen and women, I've never been in the service. I was like, "You're also, I've been seeing doctors for two and a half years. No one's used that term before. So, so where is that term coming from? And she said, listen, I, I treat people who have friends who are in 9-11, who they themselves were in 9-11, women who came back from being in a sex slave trade, people who've lived through natural disasters or saw their friends perish in natural disasters. The cognitive disorder they are displaying is very similar to the PTSD that I see in people who are like that. Who were never members of the military, but they saw traumatic events over the course of their life, and so hearing that, it it's sunk into me. But you know, I, I wanted more of an explanation. So she said, "Think of it this way: you're a sports executive, so picture that you had a front row seat for a basketball game, and if you watch these basketball, these six foot seven to seven foot athletes running up and down the court, and they're sweaty as they're running up and down the court, and the sweat's kind of hitting you every time they're running close to the sideline." So now, instead of the the game being played in front of you being basketball, think of it being the game of life. And all these events that are happening with your brother in the game of life, and then your friends are like a wrestling match instead of a basketball game. And every move your brother's making to try and survive and get through this and your friends are going through and are passing away is a different wrestling move that's in this muddy wrestling pit. And because you're courtside, the mud is hitting you, and it's hitting not just your brain, it's hitting your body and everywhere all over you. But you don't know to get up and take a shower and wash these things off. You're just sitting there watching these things take place in front of you. And so yeah. that mud is proverbial for or analogous for the stress and trauma that your body has dealt with witnessing all these events over all the, the course of all these years. And so I stopped her and and this is probably the first epiphany in in making a decision that I wanted to do something, you know, outside of hearing that this is your last resort from that other doctor, was I I said to her, Donna, if if what I witnessed in someone else has caused my cognitive dysfunction in this way and this mental health complication, take me out of the equation for a second between parents' divorces, parents' job losses, fights in the house, your own breakups. um, You know, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, bullying, bullying, cyberbullying, loss of loved ones, sickness of loved ones, uh, difficult bosses that you deal with who make your life miserable when you come in every day. It's like the list is a mile long. I could keep going on, but there's not a person in this world who skates through life without having some or many of those things happen to them. So this concept of mental health that you're sharing with me seems like it would be something that applies to everyone, not just this category of people that we hear about all the time that are like kind of by themselves, these sick people. And so she kind of, you know, older woman, so like a sage smile kind of, you know, giggled at me, but not like as a way to make fun of me, more as a way to say, yeah, I hear you. Um, unfortunately, our society doesn't see it the way that you see it, but I see it that way. And then she she tongue in cheek says, before you start saving the world, let's get you <laughs> help first. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> He sends me to this this weekend course to learn how to breathe properly. And you know, after you've taken all these drugs and these done all these like sci-fi treatments, the last thing that you're thinking is learning how to breathe properly is gonna get you better. And so I show up to this karate studio that had been rented out by this nonprofit organization. And I'm wearing like a cut sleeve t-shirt that I would wear to play in a basketball game and, and basketball shorts. And I, I'm the only man in the class, only one under 40 at the time, only one born in this country. With me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats and I'm like where in the world did I just end up but you know I, I love learning about the science behind things and asking questions and I become friends with these women who are there who this is just part of their culture they grew up doing these types of breathing practices and it wasn't strange to them it was a refresher to them whereas for me it was the first time I was doing it and what I came to find out was this isn't the way that they explain it but this is the way I now explain it to people is if we were all sitting in the same room and it was the first floor of a building and a car lost control and burst through the wall or the window in the room we were sitting in, we would all be freaked out and we'd be like, and we stop breathing for a second. And we'd be like, what in the world just happened? Well, that's scary and, and cars don't come through walls and windows often. And so it's a momentary thing. And we're shocked in the moment we stop breathing and that makes sense. Well, if you're the child of a mother who's got breast cancer, or you have a grandparent who's got Alzheimer's, or you have a brother or sister, you know, like I did, who's sick and dealing with something, or you have a son who goes to school every day, or a daughter who goes to school every day and gets bullied, and you're fearful every time they come through that door that something might happen to them because they're getting bullied. Guess what's happening? That car is coming through that wall every single day for you. And it's coming through to where you're always thinking the worst case scenario. And that resonated with me because if I was watching all these things happen with my brother and my friends, I was watching that car come through that wall on an everyday basis. Essentially, I wasn't breathing properly. I was always holding my breath, expecting the worst to happen. And so the science behind why the breath is so important is we have this nerve in our neck called the vagus nerve that goes from our brainstem all the way down to our stomach. It's the largest nerve in our body. And so if we're not breathing properly, there's gotta be a mechanism in our body that tells the rest of our system what to be doing based on the situation we're in going all the way back to ancient man, woman, right? The woolly mammoth is attacking our food or attacking our fire or attacking our people. We're going to fight, flight, freeze, all that, that we learn in biology. So if we get into this place where we're not breathing properly, we're sending messages through that nerve that something bad might happen. And if we're, our body's getting prepared for something bad might happen over and over and over and over again, our system's gonna change over time. And if you have to focus on wondering and being scared about that thing happening, I'll give you a real life example. I would play basketball growing up and it would be two miles from my house and I'd see an ambulance go by Every time I saw an ambulance go by or a cop car go by, I thought it was going to my house. Most people don't grow up that way, but that was all I knew growing up as a child. So I didn't know any better. I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. And so by learning to do these breathing practices, you're stimulating that vagus nerve, and you're basically telling your body, everything's okay, chill out. Like something bad can happen, and that's what life is. There's a series of good and bad but it's not gonna be something that's gonna happen every second of every day. And you can focus in on the moment on this thing right now that's happening, enjoy it, live it, breathe it, it, you know, go through it. And it's not gonna stop everything else in the world from happening. You can enjoy watching TV, going on a date, going to the gym, all these other things. You don't need to constantly have this worst case scenario in your mind. And so I did that practice for 30 days. Uh, They kept us on a text message thread with my new eight best friends. And we checking in with each other, like giving each other a fist bump when we did the practice for about 45 minutes a day. And um, I I remember waking up like 30 days into it. It was like a light switch had gone off in my brain. I should say gone on in my brain. And I remember waking up looking at the TV for the first time in two and a half years and being like, oh, my God, I want to turn on the TV and see what's on right now. And then the second thought was I want to have scrambled eggs for breakfast, not pancakes. And these are two things that we all think about every day but we take for granted that they register to us because when nothing bad happens where the curveball hits us we go through life and we're expecting things to work but for me because it didn't work for so long getting those things back felt like a miracle. And so I decided I was going to share my story. Again, this is before, you know, the the movement towards sharing stories. So I didn't have Instagram, I didn't have Facebook. To I had Facebook. But I didn't have Instagram or Twitter. So I had Facebook and LinkedIn. So I was like, okay, there's my personal network. There's my professional network. Part of my sharing was to kind of tell people where the hell I'd been for the last two and a half years because I'd disappeared off the face of the earth. And then part of it was to help people. So against the better judgment of some people who told me I should just keep quiet about it because this is now the you know middle part of 2017, still not much being discussed publicly, I put my phone number at the top. And I, uh, I, I wrote something that takes 35 minutes to read. So a lot more detail than I just shared <laughs> about the minutiae of, of what I'd gone through. And I put it up. And on LinkedIn, more than Facebook, you can, you can see how many people read it. And so my friend calls me the first day it's up. He's like, dude, it's like your story's going viral. And I thought viral meant putting viruses in people's computers. <laughs> Like, what what viral meant. So, I was like, Do I have to take it down? What does that mean? He's like, No, you like, I didn't understand you talk about the cloud. Like, I didn't know what the hell the cloud meant. So, like, people are just downloading and reading it, and, um, or not downloading it, just reading it off the cloud. And, um, the bigger thing was I got over 400 calls after there were 150,000 beads, but 400 calls in three days and I'm erasing my voicemail message box so that more and more people can call in and I'm tracking them in an Excel spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And what I found from the calls was no one was talking about disorder. Like I was calling these people back and they were sharing the stories of challenge they had been through. So it was everything from on the far end of the spectrum. Like I lost a child to SIDS five years ago and I've never been the same, which is like the worst thing a parent could ever go through, right? Losing a child all the way to, and I give these two ends of the spectrum to show it's not necessarily like the thing we expect it to be that is gonna change us, it could be anything. So this one woman, 32 years old, she'd been married for just under 10 years, and she said, I've got a beautiful husband, very handsome, two beautiful kids, we live the white picket fence, great house, financially stable, and I wake up every day, and I wonder whether I picked the wrong man because I broke up with my college boyfriend and I, I struggle with whether or not I'm with the right person. And and you think about how that stress and how that obsession over that thought weighs on someone over a 10-year period. Obviously, you wouldn't equate that with someone who loses a child, but our body only knows what stress and what trauma are, right? They It, it interprets the way in which, again, we expect these things to be happening to us and so when you're wondering and and obsessing over this awful thing that i might have made a bad decision about it's it's impacting you and so um you know i i I figure all right i gotta make a decision i'm either gonna go back into sports because i'm finally feeling better and that's what my whole life has been or can i use the contacts that i have in professional sports to help one of these nonprofit organizations to better get the message out there because clearly the message is not getting through to people because I wouldn't have 400 random people calling me just because I put my message up there. And I, who's someone who'd like to take care of my physical body from sports, if I had known these things that I was witnessing with my brother and friends were affecting my mental health, I would have been doing something about it. So there's something missing in these messages that are not getting through to the majority of the population that needs to hear this. So I go to the largest nonprofits in our country, at least, and I look at their websites and I'm taking notes and I notice that there's three things that all all of them are doing that I think actually move us further away from getting healthy as a society. So the first thing is they all start with the stat, one in five people are mentally ill, which is a play on trying to get people to realize how prevalent mental illness is. Wow, that's 43.8 million people in the United States or whatever the number fluctuates to based on how our population changes. Well, what's a hell of a lot bigger than 43.8 million are 80% of our population, which we're not talking to because when we say one in five of mental illness, what are we saying to the other four in five? We're saying that you're normal, healthy, fine and okay. And they're not taking into consideration all the things that I just described. Maybe not everyone is gonna go through what I went through with my brother friends, but everyone's gonna go through something. And if there's something become something that they obsess about or multiple things over time they're going to go through something similar to what i went through so that was problem number one problem number two this one's a little more controversial but i but i stand behind it is they all had the same campaign so when you were joking about that we're we're all a little crazy and the global mental the same here global mental health movement the reason why same here global mental health movement is that's what our campaign is, that's what our call to action is. We're all a little crazy the name of the organization. So kind of like how Nike has just do it. These organizations had their name and then their campaign was all copies of each other. Action words followed by stigma. So stop the stigma, stomp the stigma, erase the stigma. So with the three of us on the call right now, if I said to the two of you, you guys need to stop the stigma, you need to stomp the stigma, you need to erase the stigma. How would you feel if I'm telling you that you're the one who needs to do it, right? And I don't think our organizations that are in the mental health world understand that when we're putting an action word followed by stigma, there's an undertone to that, which is we are telling, hey, you perfectly healthy, normal, beautiful people, you need to stop stigmatizing these sick, poor people who are going through these things. Right. I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen a campaign in a history of social awareness where you split people into two categories like that, and it brings us to a better place. And I go back to the campaign that brought everyone together when my brother was going through cancer and people used to call it the big C and they would have the cancer ward and people were afraid to go near cancer patients because they were afraid they could get cancer if they get too close to someone. The campaign that changed all that was everyone knows someone affected because that put everyone on the same playing field saying it could be my brother, it could be my sister, it could be my neighbor. We got to all fight this together. And so... I think with mental health it's even a step closer than that it's not only everyone knows someone affected it's everyone is someone affected and so that was pillar number two was these these stigma campaigns are actually separating us worse into two buckets pillar number three just exacerbated pillars number one and two which were all these celebrity stories that were finally coming out and sharing a disorder that they had and that's all we learned was a disorder the media was taking those stories And then sharing the erratic behavior that came about because of those disorders. So it was Britney Spears has depression, so she shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety, so she dresses like a hot mess and can't put herself together. You know, Kevin Love, finally, when his story came out, has panic attacks, and he runs off the basketball court in the middle of the game. And probably the most recent one is a good example of it is basketball player Delonte West He has bipolar, so he takes his shirt off in the middle of the street and he's bumbling words and that's what bipolar looks like. Well, if you're the average person in that 80% that has been told that mental health is essentially mental illness because we hear only about the one in five and the examples of what mental health is are these people with disorders that are these celebrities who are doing and engaging in these erratic behaviors. You're looking at that and you're saying, Yeah, I might wake up with my brain being a little foggy or falling asleep at the desk, but that's probably just being tired. That's probably just needing to get extra sleep. That's not mental health, because that's mental health right there. And so when I saw that, I realized I couldn't in good faith put myself and use my resources and my assets towards trying to take organizations already that are putting messages out there that I think are moving us further away, that I needed to build something that actually talk about mental health in a proactive way about mental health being on a continuum, the conversation being for five in five people, not one in four people, and that it's something that we are all affected by. By the way, disorder is part of it, not that disorder makes up the whole thing. So we're not discounting disorder, and as someone who's diagnosed with PTSD, I would be considered one of those one in five mentally ill people, right? But I just don't think that talking about that in a vacuum by itself, helps the rest of our society get better. Imagine if it was physical health, and the three of us said, oh, we'll worry about our physical health if we get cancer, diabetes, or heart disease. Then no one would get on treadmills, no one would eat salads for lunch, right? (laughs) No one would worry about what they're eating. And then we would only be reactive and hope that a pill gets us better after we get to that place. So it really is the definition of insanity, the way that we're treating mental health as a society. So that led towards kind of now finishing up your question is Mm I decided to to start this organization where we would use the power of athletes first because that was the lowest hanging fruit for me but then DJs and musicians and comedians to share our stories of challenge not to share I have depression you have depression I have anxiety you have anxiety if that's part of your story fine but the bigger thing was the daily life struggles that all of these people that are looked at as having perfect lives actually go through so we could break down this BS wall of there are the perfect, normal, healthy, you know, gifted people and then there's everyone else. And so as that started to come about, that's where we came up with the Same Here campaign, which is, you know, when, when you're sharing. So Same Here means not Nicolette, I have depression, you have depression, it's i face challenges, you face challenges. If we both face challenges and, we didn't choose those challenges to happen. Life handed them to us. Why is there any shame in us talking about them? That should be things that we should openly be able to talk about. Think about like something as sensitive as women and infertility. Like, yeah, you feel like you're empty, right? Barren, like all these words you hear women describe this, but like what better way to actually feel better about that? Hopefully get your body healthy where it is producing what it needs to, so you can, you know, heal from that in some way and to share it with other people who are going through similar situations. But as a society we hide, and we say no one else can find out about that because that's a weakness in me. So anyway, that's kind of been our, our awareness campaign. And from there, what's been awesome is been able to set up after the, the, the same here name, these various programs for five different areas of society. So we've got same here schools for K and 12, Same here, service for first responders and military. Same here, sports with sports teams um, and leagues. Same here, safe for offices because no one feels safe talking about it in an office environment for fear they might get let go or not promoted. And then finally, same here, sit-downs with colleges because the feedback we got from athletic directors was good luck getting our kids to sit down and listen to a topic for two hours. So that became our than our challenge so yeah so it's, it's been a crazy whirlwind two-year ride so far and um, I'm passionate about it because it's based on my own life experiences but I'm passionate about it also because when I saw the impact that sharing my story had on other people that became even more of a driver to me than getting back into sports is the the, the feeling that I got from helping others far surpassed anything I ever got from working in professional sports
0: all right you covered everything i ever wanted to ask you i'm not no waiting for brian to jump in with one of his uh shoot off the questions i'm looking I'm like wow you covered everything I, I,
2: was, I know i was listening i mean you know i i guess the the big thing is and, and you sort of covered some of this but what are some of the you know the common misconceptions uh, that that people have you know i mean you talked about everyone sort of you know, having, having a need, right. For right. The, you know, cause we all, we all go through stress. We all go through, you know, I, I joke right. I went through a lot of natural disasters. I have a little PTSD with natural disasters. You know, I'm a, I'm a prepper, you know, like I'll start yeah. gathering if I feel something's going to come. Right. But how, you know, what is that, um, you know, what are some of the common misconceptions you see where people think it's, you know, it's okay that you've, you've experienced in this, uh, you know, situation?
1: Yeah, it, it is a little repeat, right? But, but it's important to, to make sure that we, we kind of dive a little bit deeper into, into each one. And so I think there's this misconception, first and foremost, that what we learned before mental health has now started to become a standard required uh, piece of the curriculum sadly, not in all states, only in some states. But what did we all learn growing up? We learned that depression means sadness. No, it doesn't. Depression means literally not feeling anything. And I know it manifests differently in different people, but depression is a flatness. It's an inability to get up. It's an inability to get riled up. It's an inability to feel emotion. It's an inability to care about what's on TV. It's an inability to remember what your daily routine is to get showered and dressed up. Think about how different that is than feeling sadness, right? And then we say anxiety is nervousness, right? Well, then people think that, okay, in order to have anxiety, I have to be afraid to go up in front of a room and talk. Well, I've, I define anxiety very differently when I share it with people. I talk about anxiety as our thoughts almost on a hamster wheel. So here's an example. Like I always use it based on who I'm talking to. So let's say you guys in the back of your mind as you're talking, you're like, we've got this podcast. It's not going well right now. If it doesn't go well, then people won't listen to it. If people don't listen to this episode, our listenership's going to go down. If our listenership goes down, then there's no reason for us to continue doing the podcast because then we're not going to continue to get viewers. We might not be able to get sponsors. We should just stop doing the podcast altogether, right? <laughs> And you're laughing, but that's the way that we think. That's the way that our brains go towards things. So again, how different is that than just feeling nervous? Right? Well,
0: you're you're right. You're right. And and, and I, you know what? As you were as you were talking about that, I thought of a situation, and it's it's easy to kind of define. And I was thinking about when we talked to Dr. Terilyn Sell. She's a psychotherapist and and a brain health expert. We were talking to her about a week ago, and I was just sending her video, and I was thinking about something she said. About how um, you know, it's it's easy to you know, just because you're anxious doesn't mean you have anxiety. But just yep. because you're sad or you're feeling depressed doesn't mean that you suffer from depression. And you know, for clinical terms, at things that you know aren't really the clinical, are, aren't really clinical. So that kind of isolates a lot of people. And because I mean, I think about it. I mean, how many. I, there's tons of therapists, right? and they pull up a thing, and I go in, and, and you know, I tell them, I, I have anxiety, I'm telling you. And that's, not psychiatry, super a, a But I have depression, I have this, I have that. I told my I'm bipolar, I'm telling you I'm bipolar. She's <laughs> like, no, you're not, you know? But that doesn't mean that I don't have things that are bothering me and affect me and, and other issues. So just because you don't fit a bucket doesn't mean that there aren't things that need to be spoken about. And I feel like a lot of people get dismissed then.
1: So uh, here's, here's a, an analogy from a physical health standpoint that, that fits in line with what you're talking about. We learn when we go to elementary school to, to participate in this thing called jump rope for heart. And we learn that our heart health is important, right? As little kids, we see a heart with a smiley face jumping rope on it. You could go to a doctor. You could go to a cardiologist, a specialist, who looks inside your arteries and says wow, your arteries are pretty clean. That doesn't mean they're fully clean. (laughs) That doesn't mean that you're not predisposed over time to potentially develop more plaque. That doesn't mean in 10 years from now, that cheeseburger that you eat every Wednesday because you treat yourself isn't gonna build up inside you. You've got little pieces of that building up. So for someone to say, I'm perfectly physically fit, that's not possible, right? That we all have things that are going on with us whether it's based on our lifestyle, based on genetically how we're predisposed. And so to your point, the the DSM-5, there's not a blood test that you take that says you have depression or you don't have depression, the same way there was for my brother that said, you have a certain amount of white blood cells, therefore you have cancer versus you don't have cancer, right? And so the DSM-5 is subjective. And so they try to put these, you know, things out there in the DSM-5, like you need to have felt five or more mm-hmm. of these 20 symptoms for two weeks or more in order to have this.
0: Mm-hmm. I was a psychology th- major for a semester until I read all that bullshit. And I was like, I can't do this. Yeah, look, <laughs> sorry.
1: It's, cool. it's so subjective. And, 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 and by the way, I understand that they're trying to make order out of something that's chaotic. So it, it's not an easy job. I'm not, I'm not giving it that way. But what we're not doing as a society is we're not thinking of what the negative effect of treating this whole topic that way is. Is that because you don't fit in a bucket now you don't focus on your mental health right and the, and and the practitioner is saying to you well in the back of their mind they're thinking i, I got a shitload of people i gotta see and i'm already getting my 350 bucks an hour because there's so many people who are coming to see me uh, this isn't as much of a crisis case she could mm-hmm. deal with stuff on her own right mm-hmm. how awful is that <laughs> and then then they're sending you home and they're not telling you oh by the way nicolette you could do yoga breathing practices and meditation here are the ones i recommend if you're not going to be meeting with me at least work this into your routine that's not mentioned by most of them either because you're not their patient anymore so it's like okay next person in the door and i know i'm i'm i'm, I'm speaking very critically of that industry and i don't feel like every doctor is that way i certainly feel like practitioners that practice in more of an integrative way and a holistic way and a functional way and all these terms that a lot of people look at in you know, say a snake oil and, and, and don't believe in, I kind of find it funny that some of these practices are called alternative when they've been around for thousands of years before the practices that we use right now, which are supposed to be the mainstream practices, right? Mm-hmm. And so for the, going back to that comment that that psychiatrist made to me, this is your last resort, I can't believe that a doctor who's got that level of training would say something like that. When I had never been introduced to yoga, breathing, mindfulness, tapping, havening, all these things that are out there for me. And she's telling me I'm at my last resort right now. So yeah, like, you know, the, I'm, I'm not surprised you were frustrated by it, but, but at the same time, it is how it is right now. Right. And until we start, I think, cause I don't see the medical industry necessarily doing a quick 180. What we're working on is, putting together a network of the largest integrative psychiatry network in the world. So uh, psychiatrists and psychologists, both of whom practice with everything other than just standard medication and standard talk therapy alone. So Mm -hmm. things like EMDR and CBT and DBT so that we could give people access to resources. And by the way, by no means us charging a referral fee or asking anyone for any type of money exchange involved in this, simply to give people the resources to look at places where they can get help, because what's happening is all too often is exactly what you described, and that's not getting anyone better. That's only dealing with the the, the crisis situations in the moment. And unfortunately, the reason why we're losing so many people, I think, is how many stories do we hear of suicide where the parents come out afterwards and say, not him or her, you never would have thought them, right? Well, it's because when stress and trauma build up in our system, it's kind of like this Jenga game. It just takes one more piece of that Jenga puzzle to be taken out and the tower topples over. So you could be someone just like with that heart attack with the plaque building up, you don't feel the plaque building up inside you. Maybe there was a little bit of a hint here and there. You had a pain in your jaw, pain in your arm, whatever it was. Then we lose someone to a heart attack. Same thing can happen with suicidal ideations as I experienced. The stress and trauma builds up your thoughts start going down another track now, now all of a sudden we lose people because they can't stop from themselves from those thoughts that are going on in their mind.
0: So, so now you're, I was gonna ask a question about the organization. So you're, you mentioned these five different um, factors. So what do you guys do um, when you're in those programs?
1: So we always start with either a launch assembly, if it's schools, uh, a, a launch meeting, uh, if it's offices, right? Um, A seminar, if it's teachers, right? So that launch piece is usually two hours to start off. And a lot of the concepts that are shared in that are shared based on an amalgamation of, I would call it vulnerable story sharing, the science behind how stress and trauma affects our system, and then uh, coping mechanisms so that we understand that there's ways for us to have hope and to be able to take control of what we're feeling because i think too often unfortunately in mental health the thought is if i develop this thing or if i genetically have this thing called bipolar i'm screwed there's nothing i can do about it and my brain is just going to spiral to the bottom and i'm never going to get better from this right Mm -hmm. so we start with that as as the foundation and then from there depending on on who the audience is so with schools we have sessions that we work with with teachers to teach them the positivity behind being vulnerable, but still maintaining a position of authority. We have an app that uses something called the Same Here Scale, where there's six places on the scale with different feelings and emotions like thriving, gliding, surviving, fluctuating, struggling, sinking, so that kids can see on that scale, I'm at one of those places. That doesn't mean I'm stuck in that place. I can move up and down on there. We work with schools on student-led mental health clubs so that they can keep the conversation going and it's not something where the brand is like mind something or brain health something it's more an empowerment brand like we've worked with other schools Boise State we work with them on one called Bronco Bold, right? They're the Broncos, So it's being bold about, you know, being able to talk about things. Um, and then we work with, with these different schools and organizations on setting up what we call star rooms. Star, uh, obviously an uplifting word, makes you think like you're, you know, uh, you're, you're the star of the game, right? But um, star is an acronym, stands for stress and trauma, active release and rewiring. And so it's meant to put an explanation behind these practices that we're asking people in this population that we're working with to do. Active being the most important word there, because when we feel mental health lapses, we feel like we have the flu, like we have bronchitis, like we're sick. So our mind immediately goes to, I need to lay in bed and rest. And then I need to lay in bed and rest. And then I need to lay in bed and rest. And the problem is with mental health, stagnation breeds stagnation. The more we sit still, the more we obsess over things, the more we think about why am I not getting better, the worse we spiral. And so that's not to say that we're asking people to get up and run a marathon when they're depressed, because we know that's not possible, but it's slowly building and not just the people who are dealing with these mental health complications, but people who proactively want to get to the thriving place on that Mm -hmm. continuum. So for us, working with schools, working with companies it's helping position the star rooms as a gym for the brain. Instead of it being we have we have this guidance counselor that you go speak to or this human resources director that you speak to when you have problems, it's, hey, this is the place that we go to work on our brain, just like we have a place to go to work on our body. And that seems to go over way better with students and with employees than it does by thinking about it in terms of that's the place that I go to when I'm damaged.
2: Right. So, so I have a question, you know, um, yeah. so how how much do you think uh, physical well-being plays into mental well-being? Because I'm a huge believer, like, like a lot of people, like I feel most stable, especially when I'm physically active. If I'm not being physically active, like I feel a little bit, you know, unstable. So sure. to me, like it, there's a correlation, you know, for me at least in that. Yeah
1: yeah so i I, i'm gonna answer that two different ways because i think physical feeds mental and mental feeds physical Mm -hmm. so certainly with physical feeding mental the way that you're describing it i can tell you going back to the whole stagnation breed stagnation thing if you can get up and start just doing one lap around the block
0: Mm -hmm. and then
1: one lap becomes two and then two laps become a jog getting those endorphins going getting those movements going is really important one thing i learned about movement though is the way that we walk, the way that we lift weights, we're very rigid when we do it, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, back to that example that Donna gave me about the mud hitting me and my body taking in all the stress and trauma is the reason we need to release and rewire it is it's not just from the brain, it's from the body. So one of the exercises she had me do, people who love nature wouldn't love this, although I did promise I didn't hurt the tree too bad, mm-hmm. is she had me take a bat that I had in my, in my garage and just start swinging the bat against the tree. And I said, why would I do that? I go to the gym and I can, I, can, I can just lift weights. She said, the movement of your spine back and forth and getting your body to actually bend and get things out of it where there's energy pockets that are stuck. Very similar now, I'm gonna talk about Chinese medicine, for example, medicine from the East, is there's energy that runs through our body. That's what you see when you go by acupuncture, you know, um, establishments, you see the charts, And you see the different points where the meridians are, where the energy is running through. This is not like foo-foo, you know, spiritual energy. And that's no disrespect to people who believe in spiritual energy. What I mean by that is the Eastern practitioners are literally talking about the energy that comes in from the food we eat, broken down by the mitochondria in our cell that flows through our bodies. They know that there are meridians that that those energies run through. Mm -hmm. Just like we have veins for our blood, we've got meridians where the energy runs through. And so that energy gets blocked in certain places. Think about how people who have, um, you know, uh, uh, been dealing with anxiety or depression for a long time, and you see them and their back is hunched, or their shoulders are pinched together like this, or they have GI problems, or they're limping a little bit. It's because we hold that negative energy in places. And so when we can move it around, it starts to get out of our system. That's why, you know, I think the common misconception with yoga is it's where attractive people go to work out their body. That's not what yoga is. Yoga is bending your body and holding it in certain poses to allow that energy release and to do the breath work while you're doing that energy release to create this uh, this 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 um you know sy- this symmetry in your system and the, and the and this relaxation in your system, so that's the physical affecting the, the the mental, the mental affecting the physical. This is what I learned. I went to take a course in Jakarta, Indonesia, on qigong meditation. So qigong is, is the chi at the beginning of that is energy in Chinese, mm-hmm. and so again the energy that's in our mitochondria. So, so we're talking about energy through the foods that we eat, the air that we breathe, et cetera, and the way it's broken down. What they found is, and I believe this is a big reason why there's more and more mental health complications now after the 2000s have come about than there ever was before, it appears. When we start to see the, the, the rising suicide rates and the amount of people who are having to leave school and leave work, once our lives started to get faster, because of these beautiful things that we have in our hands that we're talking on right now or that I'm talking on right now called cell phones, a lot of people look to social media and they say, "Oh, there's comparisons and, and you know that that does damage to our self-esteem. There's certainly truth to that. I think even a bigger factor, although it's impossible to measure, is even when the Blackberries first came out and the Blackberries turned into smartphones that didn't have cameras yet and then smartphones that did have cameras is, we went from a place where, We had to answer to deadlines based that people were speaking to us and giving us to now deadlines being in the palm of our hands every second of every day. Pick Mm -hmm. up Sally at school, get this paper in right now, get that project done by that day. I need you presenting right here, right? So what I learned in this Qigong course is if we sat down and we solved a puzzle for 24 hours straight, the three of us, and we didn't move our body one inch, and we were just focusing on solving that word, logic puzzle, whatever it is. On average, we would burn 2,500 calories each in 24 hours just by using this thing in our, in our head called our brain that's only 2% of our body weight. Well, 2,500 calories, okay, between a man and a woman, that's about the average number of calories we eat in a given day. That's not an excuse for people to just solve a puzzle all day and think they're <laughs> going to it, unfortunately. That'd be nice You just see, yeah, I you
0: saw the right. light bulb go off my head. You're yeah. <laughs> like, oh, shit, I get those things all day? You know, is,
1: but, but there's obviously things called metabolism involved in, and <laughs> actually using your body that, that, that comes into play. But what he was saying was that using of our brain is what's called our somatic nervous system. It's all the things we see, hear, touch, feel, talk about, And so our mind is constantly on fire working every time a push notification comes in, every time a text message comes in, every time an email comes in, our brain is constantly working, constantly working. So he said, we're doing the equivalent of sitting there trying to solve this puzzle. So when we go to bed at night, our autonomic nervous system, which is the rest and digest and works on things like our immune system and our blood pressure and our heart rate, there's not enough energy left when we're going to bed at night for that to work optimally. And why is that so important? Is it our body is kind of like a cell phone that we're putting down in the bed at night, but we're not actually plugging it into the wall because there's not enough energy for us to do the rest and digest stuff that our body needs. So whenever I get in front of a room, first question I ask is, especially when it's busy executives, I say, in the last week, how many of you have slept a night for seven or eight hours straight through and still woke up the next morning more tired than you did the night before? And inevitably you get everyone raising their hand, right? Because one time in a week is not odd for that to feel that way. That's what's happening to us. Is there's no energy left for us to do the rest and digest at night. Now, why is that impacting our physical health? Back to the original question is because if your immune system can't function optimally, well, guess what? Our cells go through cell mitosis so often that they're constantly splitting and they're constantly you know you know uh, forming new cells. That means that error cells get created. What our immune system does is it takes away those error cells. So if our error cells get taken away, sorry if my screen just went blank there for a second. I'm getting a call coming in. But if our error <laughs> cells are taken away, um, what's happening is that means that the buildup of things like tumors and bad cells in our body can more easily happen. And so, you know, when you hear things like the stat that I heard the other day with working with the NYPD that the average age of death after an NYPD officer retires is only nine years after retirement. It really gets you to start thinking about, look at how much stress these guys have been through over the course of their lives. Look at the trauma that they've seen play out in front of them. That's this leading to the body not being healthy anymore. And even though they're dying of things like diabetes, heart disease, cancer, I think it's connected all to what they're seeing and way they're processing it. Wow, that was a lot, Eric. You just gave us a lot <laughs> to chew on.
0: <laughs>
1: it's, it's, it's a lot, but it, you know, like... I guess, living it now for, for two years and, and seeing it so often and hearing everyone's story. Mm-hmm. And people call me all the time. They're like, Eric, here's my story. I don't know if, how much detail you need me to go into about my relationship with my sister versus my aunt, right? And, and, and that's what TV has taught us. And that's what traditional therapy has taught us. Like, well, there might be a difference if I'm having a problem with this member of the family versus that member of the family, or if this person is putting pressure on me this way versus that at the end of the day, when you're dealing with shit, you're dealing with shit, your body, right. it, it takes that in a certain way it's, and we're not it all, and we're not doing anything proactively about it. So For
0: individuals, you know, that's, and I tell, I talk to Brian about this all the time, right? Where everybody's, different uh, you know you can only handle what you can handle and everybody's got a different threshold for that you know i mean yeah. i can handle not the same thing as what my sister can handle you know she can break very easily you know and yeah. that's, that's her threshold you know and so yeah, I, I complain about her all the time you know <laughs> she can't handle anything you know but that's yeah. her that's who she is you know that's that's just who she is everybody's yep different. i but call if that if like that's wanted- a
1: genetic sorry that's the genetic piece right. of if you think about like if our brain is a bubble and it can only mm-hmm. expand so much, well, each of us right. have a different size balloon, right? Mm-hmm. So some of us more air can go into it and we can hold on to it before it bursts. Right. For other ones, you know, if the balloon is much smaller, <laughs> it's going to burst much sooner. So, yes.
0: so how can people get involved if they wanted to get involved with uh, the organization?
1: Yeah, so our website, which we're migrating over from, the, it's, it's right now under org, but you can also get there now through samehereglobal.org. Um, so that's the website. On the website, you can check out all the social handles, but I'll say them right now. So the social handles for Twitter and Instagram are samehere underscore global. Um, Facebook is our largest community still we are all a little crazy. So you see the, the it's either same here global or, or we are all a little crazy, you can find it both places. Migrating more towards the same here, only because we wanna really live through that campaign of getting everyone to open up. Because if we don't have everyone open up and sharing that we're all going through something, you can throw away all the talk campaigns, you can throw away all the are you okay campaigns or it's okay not to be okay campaigns. You need to reveal the underlying truth that everyone is going through something. That's the first layer. That's the first wall that needs to come down.